Colossians 3, 1 through 11. So this is a serious passage, a serious passage that calls for reflection and application. We're not going to go into all the background of Colossians as a whole, but as we consider what Colossians has for us, we would do well to focus on the Word. The most important part of the sermon has already happened. It's the, the reading of the Word. And so how do we apply the Word in front of us? As I said in my prayer, the truth of the matter is we are so often distracted. I'm so distracted. I'll, I'll be working on something and get a text. And next thing I know, 30 minutes later, I'll get back to, to the email. So we are often distracted. You and I can get distracted so quickly. Recently, I read an article in the Boston Globe that talked about distraction and its prevalence in everyday life. And in the article, it spoke about how we are speeding up life and dumbing down our minds. One Boston woman said, the cultivation of attention is of the first importance to the, inte- to the intellectual life. Let me read that again. The cultivation of attention is of the first importance to the intellectual life. She may be on to something there. The article went on to quote Henry David Thoreau, the famous poet and philosopher. He writes the following, our inventions are wont to be pretty toys which distract our attention from serious things. So, so easily we can get distracted. This is not to say we shouldn't have fun or enjoy hobbies, but as one famed cucumber named Larry said, there's a time to be silly and a time to be serious. And so here, Paul helps us understand the seriousness of the moment and the important things that we need to focus on as we look to Christ. If Christ is raised from the dead, is He? Yes. If He's raised from the dead, that's foundational for our faith. And how does that impact the ways in which we think and the ways in which we act? So my goal today, and it should be on your sheet in front of you, is to encourage you to seek things above in this distracted culture by being renewed through the truth of who Christ is and what He has done on your behalf. So there's three phrases that kind of jump off the page for me as I'm reading this passage. And I want these phrases to navigate us as we look through the first 11 verses. The first phrase is, pursue heavenly things. Not stranger things, but to pursue heavenly things. What does that look like? Well, here Paul is setting the tone for the church at Colossae and reminding them of their identity. What is your identity in Christ? If you know your identity, then you will pursue Christ who is seated in the heavens. And so, this is a declaration. Verse 1 is a declaration of who Christ is and what He has done on our behalf. Let's break down. Let's dig into the first verse. The first verse says, so if, <clears throat> so if you've been raised with Christ. Now, that that translation may sound a little misleading or maybe a bit confusing. The beginning of verse 1 isn't supposed to conjure up uncertainty. It's not like, well, is this a reality or isn't this a reality? But rather, the, maybe the better translation is since. Since you've been raised with Christ, since you've been raised with Christ, then do A, B, and C. So, since you've been raised with Christ, you'll follow Christ. And this connects with what Paul just said um, a chapter before in Colossians 2. He says, if you died with Christ 
to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Sometimes I think to myself, why did I do that? Why did I go down that path? It's because I'm longing after the things of the world instead of the things of Christ. Or maybe you're in a conversation and you, and you think to yourself, do you hear yourself? You know, as you're thinking to someone else, do you know what you're longing after? And so again, what is it that we are longing for? Well, verse 1 continues, it says, seek the things above. We're to seek after new things. Paul is implying here, you're not going to be seeking after the old things that you used to seek for, but rather you're going to seek after new things, heavenly things. Well, what are these things? Well, they, they reflect the character of God. These things are clarified even in the, as the verse continues in verse 1, Christ is above. Well, we're not just seeking something um, abstract, but Christ. We're seeking Christ. Christ is above. He's seated at the right hand of God. So Christ is the mediator that we seek. He is the one that we long for. The language here in verse 1 harkens us back to Psalm 110 and the prophecies of the Messiah. As we seek the things above, the realm above is not something that we have to conjure up. Christians have knowledge of the heavenly realm through our faith in Christ. This is a mystery that sometimes we long, long to know more about, maybe in an unhealthy manner, as to what, what does hell, heaven look like? Well, if we want to know what heaven looks like or the heavenly realms, where should we turn? To the Bible. Whoever said that, uh, gold star. And so, yes, the Bible is what we are looking for. I love the quote by David Garland. It's on your notes there. Garland says, We do not attain knowledge of the heavenly realms by using other mediators, by pursuing visionary sideshows, by submitting to legalistic decrees, by mortifying our bodies, or through astrology. If somebody has a pop-up tent and says, do you want to know, I can tell you your future? I'll tell you what, I'm going to walk right past because they don't know my future. But we do know what God's Word says, and God's Word is true. So we have access to the heavenly realm through Christ who reigns over all, and our lives should be ruled by Him. This is where, where Paul is taking us with verse 1 as the foundation of the passage. Now let's move to verse 2. Verse 1 gives us the foundation, if you have been raised with Christ, if that's your foundation, if that's the reality, if that's your identity, now we have action in verse 2. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. So not only are you and I to seek things above, but we're to set our minds on things above. Again, going back to how quickly we can be distracted how quickly we can forget. Have you ever thought, you know, you're, you're going somewhere, driving somewhere, and you think, well, where am I going? You have to, again, reset. Where, what am I doing? It's so easy to forget, so easy to be distracted. One blog writer wrote uh, just very recently how we drown in digital distractions. Everyone, or almost everyone, is addicted to their phone. Again, it's, it's drowning us. And this, another thing he says is our imaginations get distracted by a lesser story instead of the main biblical story. So we can, we can um, compromise, we can settle for a lesser story. 
And then he also said, we focus our faith primarily on what works. I thought this was the most um, interesting observation. We can, we can turn our faith into what works in the moment, what can help us uh, here and now. Trevin Wax points out that we live in a society where most people assume religion exists to help you be your true self or chase your dreams. And we can easily fall for a false version of seeking whatever is above, but only insofar as the heavenly stuff helps us with the earthly. It may look like we're seeking what's above when we're using our faith as a means to get what we, to get what, what we want here below. Christianity becomes a means to some other end. In other words, we harness the heavens for earthly aims. So as we become aware of our distractedness, it's sometimes helpful to ask diagnostic questions. This is in biblical counseling. This is good for us to, to evaluate why are we thinking? Why are we on this path? And do we need to have a course correction? So here's some diagnostic questions as you examine your minds and your motives Here's some questions to think about. Are you grabbing for power? Are you seeking to escape and or isolate? Are you trying to keep people happy? Now, none of us are going to say, oh, yeah, that's me. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, I'm guilty on all, on all accords. But the, the point of the matter is, if we are to say yes to any of these things, maybe we're trying to isolate. Maybe we're trying to be a people pleaser. What happens when we do these things? Then we are not setting our minds on things that are above. So as you are aware of what your motives might be, here's a few more questions to guide you as you apply the gospel. Are you looking to Scripture? Are you running to the Good Shepherd? Are you asking other believers to help you fix your mind on what is true? So we are called to be in community. We're called to encourage one another, to help one another. So as we get distracted, as we focus on the wrong thing, um, just yesterday someone was telling me about the importance of um, brothers and sisters speaking the truth into one another's lives. And so we, we need others to help us in this, in this race. Also, it's important to know, and Paul points this out elsewhere in his letters, as we set our minds on things above, Others don't want us to set our minds on things above. The devil wants to distract us, wants to deceive us, wants to confuse us, and wants to ultimately destroy you. So this is why it's vital that you prepare for battle, to fill your mind with what is true because truth can fade or at least it can dissipate when temptations surround us. As I thought about this verse, I thought about the importance of creating godly habits Habits that point us to God and His Word. Then I thought about a habit that all of us do. Maybe not all of us. Most of us do every evening. And I dare say especially on Sunday evenings. What's this habit? We set our alarm clock. We set our alarm clock for the evening because I need to get up at a certain time. And so you set your alarm clock to prepare for the day. To reach your goals. Well here... Even more important than setting our alarm clocks, Paul is set, telling us, set your minds. Set your minds on the things that are above, 
not on earthly things. We know what we need to get done tomorrow and the next week. We know who we need to call. We know the, the, the things that we need to take care of, our gardens, uh, taking uh, the, the uh, car in for oil change. All those things, we don't forget those things because we have to do them. But we, have to, we need to set our minds on things that are above because there are temptations that are coming. Temptations that are coming. So set your mind to prepare for the upcoming day as you are led by the Spirit. How do you do this? How do you set your mind? By filling your mind with truth, reminding yourself of your identity in Christ. This is why verses 3 and 4 are key verses in this section. If you want to memorize any verse, let me encourage you to memorize verse 3. Verse 3 is key to the passage. It's a uh, a cup of coffee for your soul this morning. Paul says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're not the old person. The old person, this is what we often say during baptism, the old person's dead. The old person died. But now your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, we can become so weary, so overwhelmed. But these are 12 words of assurance when anxiety weighs you down. These are 12 words to remind you of your salvation when the enemy comes calling. These are 12 words to remind you of God's mercy is more than the weight of your sin. So Paul is pointing the church, he's pointing us to our union with Christ. And that's not to be taken lightly. As we think about our lives being hidden with Christ, we rejoice. As we think about the resurrection, again, is Christ raised from the dead? Amen. Yes, that's true. Well, there's implications for that. Through our union with Christ and being united to His death, we are set free from the penalty of our guilt which Jesus has paid for us. Just as the worship team led this morning, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. We're called to meditate on that, to remember that. Through our union with Christ and because of the glorious resurrection, we have been set free from the reign of sin. Don't hear me say that you'll never sin again. Uh, When we moved to Alabama many years ago, we were having some van trouble, thinking that we might need a new transmission. Took it to, it's always scary when you take your vehicle to a shop and you have no idea of their reputation. And you're like, this could go bad really quickly. Well, we ended up having a spiritual conversation, um, and uh, the van turned out okay, but that's of second importance. But um, I asked the, the guy where he went to church, and he said that he was Seventh-day Adventist. And in the I don't know if all Seventh-day Adventists believe this, but in the course of conversation, he told me that we could be perfect in this life. I said, really? How's that working out for you? And he's like, well, it's not, I mean, I haven't attained it yet, but my grandmother has. I said, wow, um, I'm sure she's a nice lady, but I doubt that. <laughs> and so, again, we cannot obtain perfection. We cannot obtain pure righteousness. But in Christ, we see that we have been set free from the reign of sin. So, again, not to say that we won't ever sin, but the reign of sin, that hold, that stranglehold has been released. 
There's many, many more benefits and treasures when we think about our union with Christ. But look at the treasure of verse 4. The treasure that Paul talks about in verse 4 is this. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is the treasure. This is the beauty. Paul calls Christ his life. Again, Paul could have talked about lots of things that were his religious resume or his resume before coming to Christ, but he says, Christ is my life. That's of utmost importance. So it's not surprising that Paul would say this here because he said very similar things in Galatians. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And what does he say in Philippians? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But here, not only does, does Paul say Christ is his life, but what does he say? He says, Christ who is your life. Christ is our life. He is your life. He is our life. Christ should consume our lives. So you can see here that Paul's commitment is to Christ. His passion is for following Christ. And so sometimes as you talk to others, as you see others live out their lives, you can see where their passion lies. Maybe you, you've heard people say statements like this, for James, music is his life. For Samantha, swimming is her life. For Patrick, hockey is his life. We'll have to talk to him. Um, for Jasmine, school is her life. And so people may say that about their lives, but for the Christian, we can say and we should delight in saying, Christ is my life. So not only do we praise Christ for what He has done for us, but we pursue Christ because we will be with Him in glory. That's the treasure of verse 4. Verse 4 takes us back to where we started. As we seek the things above We pursue heavenly things because we'll be with the King of Kings. So, number one, we pursue heavenly things. Number two, we put away the old self. If Christ is our life, if your identity is found in Him, we walk according to who we are in Christ. And so, as Christians, we have an assignment to glorify God. This includes positive disciplines in our faith. If we talked about positive disciplines, what would you list? Reading the Word, or praying, or giving. But it also, besides the positive aspects, we also see, according to Paul, that we're to put to death what is evil, what does not coincide with God's character. So so what are we to put to death? The Scriptures make it clear. Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So this list is extensive, and it shows us how deceptive sin can be when it sneaks into our lives. But the temptation is to think, oh yeah, you're right, Pastor, that's a a heinous list. I've seen this take place amongst um, a neighbor's life or amongst a family member's life, or or of course we can point to the news. But the reality is these are sins that are not just out there, but these are sins that we face. Who is Paul writing? The church. And so we need to realize that these are sins 
that we must turn away from. We may be surprised by sin. In fact, somebody, uh, an elder at Sasha Baptist recently asked me, he said, Steve, what is going on when we hear of sin that is devastating those that we love? And so we are, we are shocked and we see the, the devastation of sin. But we must understand the seriousness of sin long before sin is knocking on our heart's door. John Owen famously warns Christians, be killing sin or it will be killing you. His famous book, he wrote several books, but his famous, the one that he's most known for, The Mortification of Sin, is based on Romans 8.13 that says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Makes me think of um, phone calls that we get. You know, long ago, maybe even two years ago, we'd get a spam call and we wouldn't know it. We have to listen for 15 seconds before we hung up on them. Now you get the you get the, right underneath the phone number, probably spam. Thank you so much. I'm not answering it. And so you know, it'd be great if we knew uh, as we were walking to this situation. This leads to sin. Stay away. You know, it'd be so helpful for us to know. This leads to life, walk in this way. And so Owen's reminding us, if you walk by the Spirit, you will live. Was this a revelation for the believers? Of course not. But here's what encourages me. They needed reminders. We need reminders. Owen gives several practical directives in his book. Here's a few of his steps to ponder. He says, diagnose sin's severity. Be convinced of your guilt. Avoid occasions that incite sin. And then last but not least, meditate on God's glory. As we think about God's glory, it's imperative that we bring glory to Christ. This is the highest goal. How do we bring glory to Christ? By speaking of what He's done. By pointing others to God's kingdom. By testifying of a deeper reality. And then by um, turning and running from sin. This is what John Owen is saying. Turn and run from sin. Sin leads to death. Sin is like a poisonous, aggressive snake. You don't want to be around it. Um, Recently, I was in the garage next to the parsonage, which is affectionately called the pit. Um, That's a good name. And I was in there... uh, picking up something from the garage with Kevin Cohane. Some of you know Kevin. And he's like, man, it's been a long time since I've been in this garage. And he said, Steve, look. And we looked up, and there was this snake that was crawling up into the rafters. He saw it about 10 seconds before I did. So um, after we saw that snake, we quickly got out of the garage. And then it took me about a month to go back into that corner of the garage. I wanted to give the snake a good time to get far away. But just like we would, you know, as my dad used to always say, a good snake is a dead snake. And so, again, um, now there's going to be one or two people come up to me afterwards and say, you know, snakes are not that bad. But in my opinion, uh, snakes are like uh, sin. We run from them. When we think about sins, and look at verse 5. Paul wants them to point to realize 
how deadly sin is. It's important to describe their deadly features of verse 5. Sexual immorality, this was a general term that referred to any kind of sexual sin. Impurity, another general term of moral corruption, but applies often to sexual sins. Lust, again, referring to sexual sin, and the way our hearts desire what is forbidden. Evil desire refers to our basic human inclination towards sin and rebellion. And greed refers to an inappropriate desire for more, whether it is money or something else. And so when we think about this list, social media preys upon this list. You know, whether it's an ad or whatever, it's someone else. They prey upon our desire for what is forbidden. These sins lead us to worship created things like sex and money as ultimate things. The culture will fill your mind with distorted views of sex and money. These are not gods to worship. They are gifts to, be, to enjoy and to use as outlined in God's Word. But these sins will destroy you. Sin does not satisfy you. It destroys you and those you love. We understand the severity of sin because of verse 6. What does verse 6 say? Verse 6 tells us, because of these, God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, those who persist in their sin. But for those who walk by faith in Christ, we don't ignore sin. We've been changed by God's grace, and we repent of sin. Paul's emphasis for the church at Colossae and for us today is that rebellion and impurity of the past shouldn't describe disciples who follow Jesus today. Look, look, at me, look with me at verse 5. There's a key, key phrase there. It says, if you're a follower of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, what does it say? You once walked in the sins of verse 5. So what is Paul saying? This is the old person this is the old man, the old woman, so don't walk in this way. You are not to be marked by these sins. Again, that's not to say believers will never sin in the ways that we've described, but Paul is reminding us that our hearts have been changed. Our desires have been changed. Our desires are not for worldly appetites, but for living for Christ. We once walked in our sin, but we now walk in response to our Savior. Then we come to two key words in verse 8. Not only are we to pursue heavenly things, but we are to put away the old self. What are we to put away? Verse 8 tells us what we're to put away. We're to put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and filthy language from your mouth. Well, that eliminates all driving in and out of Boston. <laughs> and so th this, is, this is challenging. It, it, is, it is difficult. But we are to put away these five destructive vices. Why are we to put away these things? Because they reveal a heart. They reveal actions that do not trust God. They reveal our desires for control, for self-centered agendas, and for our people-pleasing pursuits. 
anger, wrath, and all these other sins are cousins to pride, and they show our arrogant nature. As followers of Christ, our desire is not to explode and to leave scars on relationships, but to encourage and to build one another up. That's harder than it may appear. Well, the first two points were the longest points. You've made it this far. We are not only called to pursue heavenly things, to put away the old self, the last point is to put on the new self. Verses 9 through 11, we're to put on the new self. We're not to be characterized by lies, by deception and manipulation. Rather, we are to put on the new self. We're to walk in Christ. This requires daily focus, daily denying yourself, and daily trusting God. The reality is we learn sinful habits. We know people who encourage these habits. And we are tempted by our desires for comfort and control. But our sinful desires and destructive practices don't supersede our desire to walk in Christ, to speak the truth in one another in love. And so we are called to encourage one another, to put on the new self, to walk in Christ's ways. So how do we avoid lying? How do we avoid the destructive practices that used to describe us? Well, verse 10 gives us the answer. Verse 10 says, You have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. So in other words, God is doing a work. God is sanctifying us. He's making us more like Christ. Paul is telling us to put on the new self, to walk in the new way, the way of God. God has begun a new work when He saved you, and He continues this work as we are changed by Him. We are new creatures if we are in Christ. Our newness is found in knowing Christ. So let me ask you this morning, are you united to Christ by faith? Do you know Christ not just intellectually, but do you know Christ as Savior and Lord? To seek the things above from Colossians 3, you have to know the one who came from above. When you know Christ, you're made new. You know the power of God's love. I can say without a shadow of a doubt, many here can say this as well, the best decision I ever made was to follow Christ. As an 11-year-old boy, I knew that I was a sinner. I didn't know how, how... vast I had sinned. I didn't know the rebellion of my own heart, but I knew that I had sinned, and I knew that I needed a Savior. I knew I needed someone to pay the debt that I couldn't pay. So here, if we're to walk in the way of Christ, we have to trust Christ. So let me encourage you to trust Christ today. That means turning from sin and following Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as you know, was not just a good man, He is the heaven-sent man who is fully God. And verse 10 tells us, because of Christ, we are being renewed in knowledge. We're being made like our Creator, and this change is progressive. It reminds us of the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives to walk in the ways of Jesus, to renew our minds as we follow God. Romans 12 says, Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We determine what thinking we need to change as we live for Christ. We're to be different from the normal standards of this world. We live in response to God's grace. And we are renewed as we live as the Spirit leads us. As we close out this section, I think about Colossae, the city where Philemon lived, and there was a thriving church that was about to receive the impact of Paul's letter. And we read verse 11, that we probably don't know or understand the depth of verse 11, but Paul gives us great theological truth and application when he says, in Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian and Scythian and slave and free, but read the end of verse 11 with me. But Christ is all and in all. Christ brings us together. I often say it's not our hobbies. It's not where we live. It's not how much money we make. But it's Christ. Christ brings us together. Christ breaks down barriers. Christ breaks down the barriers between Jews and Greeks. Believe it or not, between New Englanders and Southerners. Christ does this. In Christ, He breaks down barriers between the cultured people and the uncultured. He breaks down barriers between class and class. So this is why we can say and proclaim, through Jesus Christ, through His name, everyone who believes in Him will receive forgiveness of sins. So we don't just receive forgiveness of sins, though. We receive the freedom to no longer walk in sin. Have you put off the old self? Have you turned from the old ways? As you put on the new self, you not only obey God, but you portray to others what you are living for and what the joy-filled life looks like as we seek the things above together.